Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Good morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the elders here at LifePoint, and I have the pleasure of uh, kicking off a new series that we're doing over the next few weeks. Uh, the new series is called To the Church in Elk Grove. Uh, the challenge that, challenges that we face as a church, uh, as you're looking scripture and you, you just live this life more, you understand that they are not unique compared to those uh, that the Bible was written to in the first century. Those churches maybe didn't have the technological advancement. There's differences in how they created their problems and we create our problems, uh, but the principles are the same. And so when we study the Bible, we look to understand what is said and we do our best to find the principles uh, that would apply to us you know, 2,000 years later and thousands of miles away. And so we recognize again and again uh, as Scripture says, there is nothing new under the sun. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at some teachings out of Revelation, written to real churches with real people that had thrived and failed. And uh, then we'll examine what the Apostle John wrote. Uh, he was writing Jesus' words and how it applies to us. And uh, when you hear Revelation, don't be scared because I am not a Revelation scholar. We're not going to dive really deep on end times or prophecy, or some of those teachings, but each week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a unique letter that's written to a specific church within this book. Within the book of Revelation, we find seven specific letters that John writes to churches in the province of Asia Minor, and of those seven, we're going to talk about four. Asia Minor is where modern-day Turkey is, right on the edge uh, between Asia and Europe, and when you look at the seven churches that he wrote to, geographically, they would be uh, in, in a context similar to where if you went from Elk Grove, if you went to the coast, uh, Bodega Bay on the other side of Santa Rosa, if you went down to Santa Cruz, over to Stockton, and back up to Elk Grove, that geographical region within that is roughly the region within which all these churches were. And John was on an island called Patmos writing this, which was about 40 to 60 miles off the coast, so it'd be like an island you know, 50, 60 miles southwest of Santa Cruz, writing to this region. So geographically, that's the context uh, that he was writing to. And we aren't sure why God chose the cities he did, uh, or, you know, if they were representative of all the problems there were, or if it was specific messages just for those cities. But we know that the, the message is relevant for us today as it was for them. And so as I've dived in to understand and apply this to our own context in 21st century Elk Grove, I've noticed once again what we have in common with first century Christians, that we have a lot more in common that we, than we think, that God's word applies to both churches and both times. And we're asking the question as we read through this, what does God have in mind for our church in this place at this time? The believers that John is writing to likely hailed from different socioeconomic backgrounds. They lived among non-believers who engaged in all kinds of uh, activity outside of Christ, and including idolatry and immorality. And in that way, our church is similar. Uh, various ethnicities, differing socioeconomic backgrounds, and a community of people that, if we're honest, largely aren't connected to Jesus in any way. And while these letters were, letters were written by John, and they're the words, we need to remember, they are the words of Jesus. This is literally a message delivered to John by the Lord. And we see in uh, Revelation chapter 1 through 3 in the introduction that this revelation applies to us as well. John writes, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, 
And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. And again, I'm not going to get into a lot of the uh, end time stuff and and the stuff that uh, Pastor Chris is much more equipped through his experience in teaching us about, but I do know that experts talk about this book. It was written to give encouragement and a vision of the future to persecuted Christians, to Christians under duress. Also, you know, to give them hope and to challenge, as we're going to see in a few minutes, to challenge the churches that were existing then. And so we're going to look at Paul's, or sorry, excuse me, at Jesus' words uh, to this church in Ephesus. But before we dive in uh, to the passage, there's a common structure as we go through the series that you're going to see in just about every one of the letters. And what happens is there's a greeting. Hey, how's it going? Though it's worded differently in Scripture, I know. Uh, the second thing is, you know, commendations. Here's where you've done well. Uh, next, it'll be corrections. Here's where you really stink, honestly. I mean, here, here's the areas you need to get better. Uh, then an exhortation to them to repent, to turn their lives around, to turn their churches around, and then a promise uh, of a reward for those who overcome. And so we're going to just dive in and uh, take it p- bit by bit as we go through this time, and we're going to see how this applies to us. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, John writes this, Jesus' words though, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, that, there's a lot of imagery there. This is kind of the verse that has it. But John is writing to the angel of the church. I mean, really what people concluded was this is the messenger. This is a, a representative of the church. And so this is a message to be delivered to the church. And, and he refers in there that Jesus walks among the golden lampstands. And the consensus there is that the lampstands refer to the churches, seven churches, seven lampstands. And the key as we think about what this means to us to emphasize is he is present. He walks among us. He walked walked among them. And he is not a distant God, but he is present. He has fellowship with these churches and knows what is happening there. And something else that's significant as we think about these letters to the churches that they're writing in this specific letter is that Jesus is writing to churches. He's writing to groups of people. And it seems obvious, uh, but the key here is God is less interested in empowering isolated individuals. This last year and a half, we've been really focused on this with God, perhaps. But we miss out on this. And as you look through scripture, often the the exhortations, the letters are written written to communities of followers, gatherings of followers, because we can struggle uh, with our life in Christ. The thing that we can struggle with is that we're isolated or we're mobile or we think it's about a one-on-one relationship, but we are designed to grow in our faith and to execute it in the context of community, because the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is where people will find Christ and where believers will be mobilized to help people know Christ. However imperfect the church is, and as we're going to talk about it, it has warts, but this is where community happens. So Jesus is here. He's addressing his church as a gathering of people, and that's not a mistake. Verse 2, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people or tolerate evil that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. And this is a section where he's basically saying, way to go. 
Way to go. I know there's a lot of good. Your deeds, your work, your perseverance has been outstanding. You see, the Ephesians were concerned about pleasing God. They weren't flash in the pan Christians. And we can assume from what we read uh, in the book of Ephesians and in this letter to them that this is a group of people who did a lot of good in their church. They gathered with other believers to, to learn about God's word and to pray, even if they didn't feel like it. You hear, you hear consistency. They weren't giving in to immorality. They were not giving in and to, to explosions of anger. This is something to be, there's something to be said for Christians who day after day show up and do what they need to do. They endured, you know, trials for Christ's sake, and they had not grown weary. They had pers persevered. In the same way as we think about the church of Elk Grove, you know, I see so much that we can be proud of. You know, we have a church that when you look at it, we genuinely take care of the people in our church. There's always going to be exceptions, but whenever you hear about needs, some of you experience that, people step up in this church. We have a generous generous church. I, I can't think of times, you know, like with the church in Meadowview and, and a couple circumstances and other ones, when, when we hear about needs, we want to step up. There's many in the church who serve faithfully. I think about the student ministry workers who serve faithfully week after week after week to invest in other people. There is so much that we can be proud of, but th there's so much to commend both with the Ephesians and with us. But then we get to the part where Jesus gets very blunt about where they fall short. He says this, yet I hold this against you. I'll just give you a hint. If anyone ever starts a sentence with those words, you may want to leave, okay? Yeah, yeah, I understand. So, no. Oh, okay, good, good. You're, you're, you're still with us. Proud of everyone for staying put. No, I, that's good. That's good. <laughs> They're like, we are not coming back. Okay. Um, yet I hold this against you. He says, you have forsaken. You have abandoned the love you had at first. <clears throat> Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He says, you have left and forsaken the love you had at first. You have lost. You have lost your first love. And the Greek word used for lost or forsaken um, is the same word as for divorce. And when you think of divorce, you think of something that's broken, usually irretrievably. And he said, basically, you have been divorced from the first love. And, and consider how far you have fallen. You've done a lot of good, but man, are you off here. And frankly, with how Revelation is communicated, it's not abundantly clear exactly what he's talking about, but I think we can get to it uh, based off other scripture and just where, where he's going with this when he talks about forsaking their first love. We'll dive into that more in just a few minutes. So just to recap, he's done the greeting. Uh, he, he said, here's where you're doing great. Here's where you're failing. And then he closes it, and he says in verse 6, but you have this in your favor. Again, I think it's kind of a good news, bad news sandwich. He starts with good and then has a little more good news. Bad news is in the middle. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we're not going to get into that. We may get into it in another message. But basically, what they taught is the physical body wasn't that important and believers could engage in things that weren't right uh, without consequence. And so basically, he's saying, yeah, you stood up to that 
And that's good. I can't stand that behavior either. And then in verse 7, he closes out this section and he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so he gives this statement, he gives this challenge, and he says, whoever has ears, let him hear. I have ears. You have ears. Uh, you know, that's not something we struggle with. I found out earlier that I have really small ears when they were putting this thing on. I got a complex about it right now, but that's a whole different deal. But it seems obvious. Hey, you have ears, you know, let them hear. You know, why are we talking about this? And one of the things, again, just came to mind as I was thinking about this is it seems obvious, it seems apparent, but I don't know if we can take that for granted. I can't think of a time in my life where Christians, church people, have been more resistant to teaching, accountability, feedback, wisdom, when it comes from people they may not fully agree with. I was with a gathering of pastors last week. I do it for my real job. I uh, help out pastors and financing and all that kind of stuff, but I was with them, and for all of the input we got, they were tired. This last year has been a burden on a lot of people. Imagine leading a flock of people with, of 800 people with 800 different opinions on what you need to do, trying to honor God, trying to honor governmental authorities, trying to honor your calling, trying to do it in a way where you can move the church ahead. And I just say, if you have ears, you need to hear what God has to say to you, and I need to do the same. But the summary here, as, as, we, as we come to the tale of this passage, we're going to park in the verses four, and, verses 4 and 5 where there's some principles that I want you to remember. The principles, and we'll, we'll break these down one by one, is remember where you came from. Repent for leaving your first love, and you do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and do what you did at first. And as we reflect on this passage we need to challenge ourselves as he is challenging this church in Ephesus. First, we need to remember where we came from. You know, as we look at this passage and applying this passage, we're talking to Christians. This is a week where if you came here and you don't, you know, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you wouldn't say that. You know, you'd just say, hey, I'm kind of exploring this. I mean, you're kind of in a place where we're talking to those who have made that commitment. And that's okay. I'm, I'm really glad you're here. It's kind of a family business kind of conversation and there's many of you, you know, you're searching, and, you know, I'll be painfully honest. It may be the reason that you haven't embraced Christianity is because of what we're talking about today. It may be the, you know, Christians who don't live in a way that reflect a change of life, uh, reflect the Jesus that you're interested in. It may be that you've seen Christians who are more about an earthly agenda than a heavenly one, and that's confused you. Maybe you've thought that Christians have been inconsistent uh, and honestly, haven't demonstrated a different life, the joy and the peace that you're looking for. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here because this is a peek behind the curtain that our lives are messy too. too. But I, I would say that people who are here have found hope and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And that's what we have in common. The crazy thing is sometimes we feel proud about it and it, you know, we have to check ourselves on that. But I heard someone say once that we shouldn't be proud about it. We're just beggars who are telling other beggars where we found food. That's ultimately what it is. And so for the Ephesians, we actually have the context. When, when, you, when we say we need to remember where we came from, we have the context where we came from because of other scripture. 30 or so years prior to this message from Jesus, Paul wrote a letter 
to the Ephesians. And in this book, we see some powerful language, both praising their faith and maturity with vivid reminders of how far they had come. And we'll pick it up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. As for you, he's talking to the Ephesians, the same church that had everyone, everything nailed, except that one thing, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. He's saying, you know, remember where you came from? That's where you came from. The transgression, sins, all of us struggle with that. But then he gives what happened. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The message paraphrase of one of the verses in there says, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. And so as we look at this, as we think about where the Ephesians may have been, where we are, I am just serious that I believe that we have forgotten what it's like to be lost. Intellectually, maybe, I don't think we feel it. You know, these are the people I'm talking to. These are the people John is writing to. They've done well to emphasize, but they've lost their first the emphasized truth, excuse me, but they've lost their first love. They've forgotten what it's like to know Jesus. I'll just ask you a few questions to see where you're at on that. Are you more concerned that your gay neighbor meets an authentic and loving follower of Jesus, or are you more concerned that they may have an agenda? Are you more concerned with the fact that you believe different things that leads to tension with friends and family than you are of loving them in a way that pushes them towards God? Are you more concerned with protecting things in your insulated life than maybe rocking your world a little bit and stepping out and being with people who are a little more messy? We've forgotten what it's like to be lost and too often view those who don't share our faith or share our perspective as a hindrance, as a nuisance, and sometimes even an enemy. It should go unsaid, and again, we touch on this because it's an issue, but on social media, it's magnified. There are times I see things that friends of mine post that I just pray non-believing friends of mine don't see. I know they mean well. I know they mean well, and, and, and by some mental gymnastics thinks it'll actually change opinions, which it doesn't usually, but we have to be sensitive to how people are gonna see this. Um, in the social media channel, Twitter, uh, you know, there's a lot more conversations on like worldly events, politics, current events, faith, all of that. And if you don't know, if you've never been on there, they have like a profile picture, that's you, uh, and then it has descriptions. They call it a Twitter bio, like, you know, Derek Goody, husband, you know, C- Cubs fan, father, 
you know, beer con- beard connoisseur, you know, or, you know, Trevor Bross, you know, husband, dad, interpretive dancer, worship pastor, you know, it'll, it'll like have all these things that just kind of describe uh, who the person is. And I'm so tempted to keep going on this. Just, I, I could go down such a long list. So, uh, Ron, I saw you. I'm, uh, be grateful. But there was a comedian on Twitter who I don't believe is a Christian, but he, he wrote this once and it was like a punch in the gut. He said, rarely does a profile picture of a cross does that person have a Christ-like thing to say? It, it may not be you, but that's what this world sees, is, is Christians who are more about being right than impact in the world. We don't need to just remember where we come, came from, but we need to repent for leaving our first love. Repent is a term to, to, to do an about face, it's to turn around, it's, it's to go a different direction. And the question here is, is, is Jesus talking about our love for God or love for others? When, we, when he talks about losing our first love. And I think it's worth noting that these two are inseparable. 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You could say that disconnecting these is an affliction that both the Ephesian church and the Elk Grove church have in common. We all deal with this, right? Whoever claims to love God but hates someone of a different faith or someone with a political sticker, someone who doesn't agree with you or said something that ticks you off, you're a liar if you say you love God and you don't love them. The Ephesians were doing most of the right things, standing for what was true and thinking, I must be doing okay, but Jesus says here, that's not enough. It's not enough to have the truth nailed down. It's not enough to have sound teaching. It's not enough to just to be diligent. And in Ephesians 4, 15, when Paul was writing to the same church, he said, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. What a beautiful verse. It says truth in love, not just truth in and love. I think we can look at it this time. Yeah, I'm pretty good on, I'm great on truth. I'm getting pretty good on, on love. No, 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 no. We can't speak truth without love is what he's saying. Uh, truth without love may be a way to show dis- displeasure. It may be a way to show frustration. It may be in a negotiate, a negotiation setting in your business, the MO. But for the church, for, for the called out community of God to rep- uh, that God called out to represent him, to be his beacon to a lost world, truth without love is unacceptable to him. And I think it should be to us. I think that's the core of leaving our first love. It's when we take all the truth of Jesus and the way we think about things in the world, our schools, our workplace, all this stuff, and we thrust it on those entities without any trace of the love that Jesus has for them. You know, if we could create a Christian utopia and the world just goes to hell. That's not success. But often, my actions, our actions can make it seem like it is because Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. How about this? How about we choose to lose an argument or not engage in a conversation if we think it's going to pull someone away from Christ? Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me? What if the driving force of our connection with people, imagine this, is will it draw them to him or push them away? 
What if that was a consideration each time we're engaging in, in the PTA me- meeting, at that family reunion, you know, uh, for, your, for your kid's uh, soccer team that you help coach with? If those people were to find out that you're a Christian, even if you have t- polar opposite beliefs, could it draw them just a little bit to him? I think we're way past just, hey, we wish we could give the gospel, they could respond. There, there's deconstruction we have to do, honestly, in our society, in our community. People think that Jesus is not an option for them because of their image of the church. Can we say to a friend or to someone, hey, I disagree with you. You know, we were talking about that issue with our schools. I think if they did that, it would be destructive. And I disagree with you, but you know what? I respect you. I respect your opinion, even though I don't agree with it. I mean, can we have that kind of tone? Is that too idealistic? Probably in some cases. But can we have that idea? Because I, I think that we've forgotten about our responsibility to represent Jesus to our community. I think we've forgotten that. We've gotten comfortable. It's easy to do. The tendency for, for Christians, and I know myself, is to turn inward. And we look at ourselves, And we actually, have, some of it's because of comfort. When you go to other countries, they're a lot more missional and they, they don't argue about as many things because they're fighting to survive. And it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a um, symptom of our comfort. Tim Keller had, uh, said something that really hit me about those who are religiously fanatical. And he said, they're overbearing, they're insensitive and harsh. Why? It's not because they're too Christian, it's because they're not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous, but they're not fanatically humble, fanatically sensitive, empathetic, and loving as Christ was. What if we were fanatical about those things? See, truth without love is a wrecking ball to our community's potential to embrace Jesus. Brendan Manning had a quote a long time ago that just worth it. He said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and they walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what the world simply finds unbelievable. If we just speak the truth with love, you know, if we just, sorry, if we just speak truth, uh, if we just speak with love in mind, excuse me, I'm thinking about the technical difficulties too, <laughs> then truth can be underemphasized. And don't get me wrong, we live in a day where we need both. I am not saying to underemphasize truth. Truth, God gives us truth, absolute truth, but so often we're more concerned with speaking it and not as concerned with how we speak it. Do we speak the truth in irritation? Do we speak the truth in judgment? Do we speak the truth out of being offended? Do we speak the truth looking for a fight? Because I'm going to go out on a limb and say that someone who has religious disagreements with you, they know what you believe and they know your arguments. I'm going to go out on a limb and say someone who lives an alternative lifestyle, like morally and everything else, they know what you're going to say before you're going to say it. We need to do a lot less truth-telling, in my opinion, and a lot more loving, and a lot more listening. And when we've earned the right to be heard... We have the rapport and the relationship and the respect that can open people up to God's truth. The last part of what we're talking about is not just remember where you came from or repent for leaving your first love, but do the works you did at first, he says, I believe, in verse 5. Do the works you did at first. He's calling the Ephesians, he's calling us to go back to where we were. 
And I was thinking, how do we get there? How do we, how do we reset? You know, how do we get a bit of a do-over? And I think the truth of the matter is we forget or we have forgotten how deep and rich His grace is. And I think we need to remember that. I think we've forgotten that. I think when you think, when you lean on His grace and how rich and how deep it is, it changes the way we look at others. It changes the way that we look at our own worthiness, which is not very much. And it changes the way uh, we look at whether it's our responsibility to impact other people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, God raised up with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I believe it's impossible to be dismissive and callous to a lost and unbelieving world if you understand the true depth of his grace and the cost that it was to Jesus. And it's hard to remember. We take communion, we try to remind ourselves, but we get caught off guard. The last couple of verses in Ephesians that, that we're looking at, verses eight and nine, it says, for as by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. How do we do the works we did at first? We recognize and remember how deep his grace is. And we're impacted by it, it's transforming. One of my favorite images, stories in regard to this is from the book, play, movie, Les Miserables. And if you know the story, you don't. I mean, really what it is, is is there's a prisoner named Jean Valjean. I think he's in prison for 20 years. He gets released. He has no opportunities anywhere. And one night he's hungry and he's cold. He's sleeping outside. And this bishop walks up and invites him to his house for a meal and a bed. Didn't know him from Adam. Invited him into his home. Fed him a great meal. uh, Got into a comfortable bed. In the middle of the night, he fell back on his nature. And he thought, there's something valuable here. And he goes out in the main room and starts taking the silver that belongs to the family, puts it in the satchel, and he's about to leave when the bishop confronts him. And rather than being convicted, he, he punches him, knocks him down, and Jean Valjean takes off out the door. The next day, at least in the movie version, the bishop's wife is saying, why on earth did we invite him over? And they're outside, and uh, the authorities bring Valjean back to them with a bag of what he stole. And the authorities said, this man says that you gave this to him. Like, isn't that ridiculous? And the bishop looks at Jean and he looks at the authorities and he goes, yes, I did. And he said, but Jean, you forgot the candlesticks. I told you to take the candlesticks. They're the most valuable of all. And he says to his wife, hey, go back, get those candlesticks. We got to give them to him. And she's looking at him like he's nuts. He gets the candlesticks. The authorities go away really confused. And the book version said that his face had an expression. Jean Valjean, when he heard this, his face had an expression no words could describe. And he gives him the silver, hands it over to him. The bishop says, Jean, with the silver, I ransom you from fear and hatred. And I give you back to God. And he asked for his promise to be a new man. And he said, I promise. And from then on, his life and that story was just changed on a dime. 
what God did was so much greater, but that so captures both forgiveness and the transformative power of grace. And as we reflect on what Jesus taught to us during this passage about losing our first love and how we may have forgotten what it's like to be lost, my question for you is, what's a perspective shift that you need to have as you lean on his grace today? What is a tweak? Who is a person or two that you go, I need on the whole trajectory of life, I need to get them a couple notches toward Jesus. It may not even involve talking to him, them about Jesus, but just loving them and being someone who has a life that they respect. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's humbling to think about I mean, we, we, we just can't even capture how deep your grace is and get our arms around it. And Lord, as we think about losing our first love, may you remind us that there's those all around us who have never experienced that love. And we may not be eloquent, we may not be evangelists, but Lord, can we just stop doing some things that get in the way and start doing some things that make our lives appealing that may confirm that you're irresistible Lord we thank you for being able to focus on this we thank you for your word and Lord we thank you that we can be different it's in your name we pray amen we hope you enjoyed today's message you can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org if you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.